This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. All right, we're going to go to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 15 tonight, if you will. 2 Samuel 15, I'm quieting my phone so the devil doesn't call. 2 Samuel 15, if you're here this morning, you understand that. Uh, pastor said something about my trailer. I mentioned it's on life support. My family's still living in it, but we, it's just the slide-outs are not coming in properly. It is the only house we have. And about six years ago, I was out at Ohana in Hawaii, and I got a phone call up at the Dole Plantation that I did not want to hear. They said well, our trailer had gone in, was getting some work done on it. It got hit by a, had, had been hit by a mower, our church mower, and it racked the slide-out and $6,000 worth of damage. And Insurance covered that, church insurance covered that, but while it was in the shop, they said, you've got damage all the way around, it's compromised, and the insurance company wants to buy you out. I said, what does that mean? They want to total it, just walk away from it. I said, hmm, I'm not the guy that parks this next to his house, this is my house, and they said, well, we'll treat you well, but so a trailer that I paid uh, $50,000 for, they gave us 29000 which was kind, and we'd lived in it five years, I think, at the time. And then, uh, no, more than that. And then, they, and then I bought it back for 3000 So not in, it's not insured, but, you know, truck's insured. So um, I asked the place doing the repair, how long do you think we might get out of it? They said, you might get one or two more years. That was six years ago. So we've been living in it, and it just needs to be replaced. So I'll, I'll give you some more later. I don't, I'm really the person who, I don't like to make my needs known to people. I, God knows. But um, since you're pastor wanted me to tell you that's I'll tell you that much okay and so ours is oh, and, and I, I, I probably should say this people will come and say hey have you seen this one there are hundreds of them out there I know that but mine's not the vacation one who else travels you know 30 40 weeks a year move all the time so it has to be really well built because it is loaded to the gills it's maxed out the Wagars can tell you about that they live in theirs too so um I'm aware that there are all kinds of them out there. It's got to be the right one. So anyway, just pray. The Lord knows where it is. I'm not worried about it, but it is time. And uh, my time frame would be, next month would be good. Um, and, and again, this, this didn't take God by surprise. I've been praying about this for six years. So it's not like I just started praying. So literally, I am praying next month uh, because that's about the only time I have. I've got a month before I gotta go out to Ohana in Hawaii. And I know as soon as I tell you I'm heading to Hawaii, like, forget it. You're not praying for me. Okay, but... Um, <laughs> I do go to Alabama every year, too, you know, just saying. So anyway, I'm heading to Hawaii, but uh, that, to get it before then, I do have a little bit of time to be able to buy it. Okay, so is that, that's probably enough. Okay, 2 Samuel 15. Four years, my family hosted a preacher's retreat in northern Alabama. My, my brother-in-law, Michael Westberg, used to travel with us with his family. And so Michael and his wife, Candace, did our children's ministry and music We'd have them today, except they went from five kids to seven, and they were all ten and under. They had twins. And uh, so he's a pastor now. Now they have eight kids. So he's a pastor. They don't travel with us anymore. But we used to travel together, had a great time. It's my wife's brother. And every year, for eight straight years, we hosted a retreat in northern Alabama. You'd have loved this, Pastor. You wish I'd known you back then. It was a golf retreat. And uh, the way we did it was I started going to these conferences, and I'd see preachers and think, yeah, we need to catch up. Of course, you're so busy with sessions, who has time to catch up? And we'd catch, you know, lunch or whatever. But I thought, we need a retreat that's just focused on guys fellowshipping. And so I prayed about it, and the Lord gave us a 
resort place in northern Alabama, just south of the Tennessee line, foothills, pretty, beautiful spot. And pastors and their wives would come for multiple days. I had businessmen that supported it, and the men would play golf, and the women would do shopping and ladies' outings, and then we'd have a big service every night. So we just had one preaching session a night. In fact, Terry Snow would bring the outreach quartet and the gratis, and they would sing, and I'd bring in a preacher. I didn't preach it. I just hosted it. So I'd have different pastors preach it, and I'm telling you all this because twice in the eight years I had Brother Jim Shetler. He had been my pastor at Pensacola. Have any of you ever heard Jim Shetler preach? Okay, if you've ever heard Jim Shetler, he's like um, Brian Tarkenton in the pulpit. Okay, it was unbelievable. He's just, you know, this kind of personality. <laughs> Brian with his meds, maybe. Okay, so. Um, oh, that's HIPAA violation. I probably shouldn't have said it. No, so anyway, uh, Shetler's an enthusiastic guy. So twice he, he came and spoke at our church, or at our retreat, and. One time, it was incredible. I found out later, two of the men that came to this retreat didn't know each other, but each of them had said to his wife, the church doesn't know this, but when we go home, I, I plan to resign. I'm just done. I'm, I'm so discouraged. They were coming to the retreat as kind of a last hope for encouragement. Shetler preached a couple of messages that week were so phenomenal. One was on Ruth, I remember, but one was on the man whose life we're going to look at tonight. And when I heard it, it was a biographical study, when I heard it, I said, I have got to preach on that guy. And I'll tell you how he introduced it. It was not your typical Shetler message. Jim Shetler is a tremendous pulpiteer, and he's not only dynamic, he will always give you good substance. He usually has a very well-outlined message. That was not the case this night. It was just a study of just, here's the guy we're going to look at, but I'll tell you what, it was transformative. He said, I had a guy come to me one time, he said, hey, pastor, have you ever studied Ahithophel? He said, is he in the Bible? He said, of course he's in the Bible. He said, I'm sure I've read it, brother. He said, I've read through the whole Bible lots of times. He said, you need to study Ahithophel. Okay, note to self, study Ahithophel. He said, well, of course, at the time, I'm the pastor of a church. I'm in a college ministry. I've got all this going on. And so, you know, I'm, I got a lot going. I'll get to it, right? So a couple weeks later, this fellow, Steve, came up and said, pastor, you do the Ahithophel study? He said, yeah, bro, I haven't gotten to it yet, but I will. I will. So he said, a week or two later, I'm at home. My wife's at a ladies' meeting. My kids are at the Christian school doing uh, after school something or other. He said, I got a half hour free time, and I remembered Ahithophel. So I pulled out the concordance. He said, I'm just going to find Ahithophel in the Bible. So he said, I start reading them. And it, was, it was unbelievable. He said, I'm reading this guy's life, and it's just like, I oh, wow. It's kind of that message. And I will tell you, he just walked us through the life, and when it was done, these two men later said, that message changed my life. Not only, they told us after the fact, they not only went back and decided to stick with it in their churches, they said they had the best year they'd ever had in those ministries. Now you may be wondering, well, what did he preach? Well, I'm going to tell you. But I'm not going to give you a title yet. I'll get to a title, okay? But I don't want to give away the topic. Okay, so... Blank line at the top, I will give you, I'll always give you a title, I'll always give you an outline, okay? And I will give you an outline, because I can't stand that outline. But we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 15, and uh, we're going to study a man in the Bible named Ahithophel. 2 Samuel 15. Now, we don't have time to read every passage about him, but I'm going to tell you, this sets up like some whodunit or some mystery. I don't... Uh, 
I don't watch a lot of TV other than like sports and news. I, I get probably too much of sports and news. But once in a while, I have seen a program like maybe 48 Hours or Unsolved Mysteries and and being the one who is the prophet, and I don't mean I'm getting revelation from God, but motivated by thus saith the Lord, it, it bugs me when people get away with injustice. The name Alvin Bragg drives me crazy right now, but that's a different topic for another time. Uh, so when I'm seeing people get away with stuff, like, okay. So if you're that kind of person, you're going to see this is one of those, it's like a novel the way this plays out. Okay, we're going to start, we're going to do a series of questions tonight. This is going to be a who, what, how, and why message. Okay, let's start with the who. Who was Ahithophel? 2 Samuel 15. All right, follow along. I won't have you stand. I'd love to have you take some notes. All right, number one, who was Ahithophel? Look at verse 10 of chapter 15. Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigneth in Hebron. And with Absalom went 200 men out of Jerusalem that were called. They went out in their simplicity. They knew not anything. And Absalom sent for Ahithophel. There it is. I circled that name in my Bible. You may want to somehow mark that name. I circled it. Sent for Ahithophel the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, even from Gila, while he offered sacrifices, and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. All right, who was Ahithophel? First of all, he was counselor to David. Counselor to David. Now, let me, let me we have come into a hornet's nest here, so let me give you a little background. You remember Absalom. How was Absalom related to David? He was Absalom's son. In fact, he was his firstborn. And so you may remember this. Um, we are reading about a, a developing coup d'etat. Okay, at this point, there's a, an attempt to throw over the government. David is the government, and his son is wanting to take over. Whoa, okay, there's a backstory here. What happened? Well, it goes back several years. You remember Absalom had a sister, a full-blooded sister named Tamar, or Tamar, Tamar, and they had a half-brother, and um, his name was Amnon. And Amnon was a twisted fellow. In fact, he... Bible says, fellow lusting for his sister, half-sister Tamar, and he wanted to have a very inappropriate relationship with her. And so Amnon had a friend who's Jonadab, and he said, well, here's what you do. You just uh, pretend that you're sick and have her come in and prepare a meal for you and then just have your way with her. You know, the Bible does not gloss over uh, ugliness of sin. And that's what happens. She, she comes in under innocent circumstances and... Uh, he rapes his sister. It's, it's ugly, awful. And when that happens, she is beside herself, and she says, you better ask my father to marry me that you've done this, and now he wants nothing to do with her. You know, so he doesn't love her. He, it's just, just lust. So Absalom is beside himself that his sister has been defiled by this half-brother of theirs, and he commiserates with some others, and short of the story is they, they kill Amnon. And then Absalom flees from Jerusalem. Well, after some time goes by, the military general under David, a man named Joab, says, are you not going to bring your son back? And David realizes, you know, I, I need to reconcile with my son. So he sends for Absalom. Absalom comes back home. Well, the Bible says that David hugged his son. He even kissed his son. But you get the idea. It's kind of perfunctory, just going through the motions. And Absalom is living in Jerusalem, but he's not in the palace, and he can tell he's not in his dad's favor, and he becomes bitter. Have you ever heard the adage that hurt people hurt people? Boy, is that true. 
So Absalom's been hurt, and now he's determined he is going to take over the throne. You might remember he would sit in the court or in the um, gates of the city. That's where government transaction was carried on. And he, he would say, all that I were judging Israel, here's what I would do. He's listening to people. And the scripture says it this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. So he has ingratiated himself with the people. So now we're, we're seeing where David is being forced to flee the city. But the player we're interested in here is verse 12, Ahithophel, David's counselor. Now what does that mean? He would have been to David like a presidential cabinet member. So you know when presidents have, they have confidants that they put in their cabinets. Oh yeah, I better not run down this trail. Mayorkas, Secretary of Homeland Security, and okay. So you get the idea, all right? There are people in presidential cabinets and they are trusted confidants. So here he is, Ahithophel, counselor to David. Well, what happens? All right, read on. Go to chapter 15, verse 30. David went up by the ascent of Mount Olivet. He wept as he went up. He had his head covered. He went barefoot. All the people that was with him covered every man his head. They went up weeping as they went up. And one told David, saying, Ahithophel, I circled that, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. By the way, the Bible says to pray for uh, government officials, pray for all that are in authority. And that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. And honestly, I pray a lot. Lord, if, if they'll repent, please bring them to repentance. If not, I pray this a lot. Turn their counsel into foolishness. A lot of them are doing a good job themselves. But you know, Lord, would you just turn their... Don't let it go anywhere. Don't let it achieve anything. David so respected this man. He was the preeminent counselor. And he said, Lord, if Ahithophel starts giving Absalom instruction, we're in trouble because he is a genius when it comes to this stuff. Verse 32, came to pass when David was come to the top of the mount where he worshiped God, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat rent, earth upon his head, unto whom David said, if thou passest on with me, thou shalt be a burden to me. But if thou return to the city, say to Absalom, I will be thy servant, O king, as I've been thy father's servant hitherto, so I'll now be thy servant. Then mayest thou for me defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. Now let me just pause there. You might say, what? Hushai's loyal to David. I better interject this. Sometimes we throw out all these names and people are like, oh, too many names, uh, too many, just sorry, you lost me, hold, hold on a minute. If any of you are readers, you will know that this is, this is a kind of a uh, tactic of modern writing. Novel writers, uh, fiction writers, they will introduce several people in a, a scenario and they'll go, you know, 10, 15 pages into it and you'll have all these characters. Then they'll jump to a completely different scenario, a bunch of other people, and then, then they'll jump from that and go to another. And later on, they'll bring them all together. And look, these guys are best selling authors and people will read it. Don't get lazy when you read the Bible. God often is bringing different names and scenarios in, and you got to study to show yourself approved under God. So don't let your mind just be overwhelmed. Okay, Ahithophel, Hushai, you know, why aren't they named Joe and Bob and Dave? And they didn't live in America, okay? So Hushai is loyal to David. He says, you're fleeing the city. Let me go with you. He says, Hushai, if you go with me, you're just another mouth to feed. And you really want to help me? Go volunteer your service to my son. And you tell him, Absalom, I'll be your servant just like I was your father's servant. What is David thinking? Espionage. He wants a spy in the palace. Now, those who say the Bible is uninteresting have not read the Bible. 
let me tell you. So this is, and this is all history. This stuff really happened, you know, and the thing about history is it's more interesting than fiction. Can't make this stuff up. So he says, you go volunteer to be his servant. All right, so pick up in verse um, 34. I'm sorry, verse 35. Hast thou not here with thee Zadok and Abiathar, the priest? Therefore it shall be that what things soever thou shalt hear the king's house, thou shalt tell it to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Behold, they have them with their, their two sons, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, Jonathan, Abiathar's son. By them ye shall send to me everything that you can hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came to the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. Okay, so... Who is Ahithophel? He's counselor to David. He's conspirator against David. Conspirator against David. He went from trusted advisor to turncoat adversary. I remember um, last, yeah, two years ago, I was reading the book 1776. Uh, McCullough, I think it's McCullough wrote that one. And uh, very interesting. And he was talking about George Washington had a rival in his day who was, many believe, equally as brilliant but he became infamous in American history. His name is Benedict Arnold. Have you ever heard that name? Now, think about this. Why don't Americans name their kids Benedict? <laughs> Traitor, right? Why don't Americans name their kids Judas? Judas Iscariot. Why don't Americans name their kids Ahithophel? Too many syllables. So, but the truth of the matter is he'd be in the same category as Benedict Arnold or as Judas Iscariot. He's turncoat. He turned on David. Okay, that's the who question. Number two then, what? What did Ahithophel advise? All right, let's take a look at the what. What did he advise? Go to chapter 16 now, and I'm going to pick up the reading in verse 20. So we're going to jump ahead. Fast forward, chapter 16, verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, okay, there's that name again. So Absalom, David's son, give counsel among you what we shall do. Hithophel said to Absalom, Go into thy father's concubines, which he hath left to keep the house. All Israel shall hear that thou art a port of thy father. Then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. So they spread Absalom a tent upon the top of the house. And Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Now that doesn't mean it was noble counsel. It just means it was so trusted it's as if God himself had spoken. If Ahithophel said it, it was... It was gold. What did he advise? He said, your father's left some concubines behind. Okay, what's a concubine? You've got to remember back then, kings would have multiple wives. They weren't supposed to. God specifically forbade that, but they did it. So they had a harem. Well, then they would have these secondary wives. So just being discreet about the whole thing, uh, you know, if a, if a primary wife might be, she might give birth to the heir of the throne, she might receive the king's inheritance. A secondary wife was just legally part of the king's harem, but so he says he left, she, he, uh, David left these concubines behind, so set up a tent and just go defile the concubines. What? Are you kidding me? So what did he advise? Adultery with David's wives. But wait, he's not done. Go to chapter 17 now, and there's something else he advises. Look at chapter 17, verse 1, the next verse. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me now choose out 12,000 men. I'll arise and pursue after David this night. I'll come upon him while he's weary and weak-handed. I'll make him afraid. All the people that are with him shall flee. I will smite the king only. And I'll bring back all the people to thee. The man whom thou seekest is as if all returned, so the people will, shall be in peace. And the saying pleased Absalom well and all the elders of Israel. Okay, what's he saying? Hey, listen, you give me a group of 12,000 men. All I need is a small 
company here. We'll go get David ourselves. In fact, I personally will smite the king. What's that mean? I'll kill him. Wow, with friends like Ahithophel, who needs ISIS? Think about this. This was his, not just a confidant, this was a very close friend. What? So he says, commit adultery with his wives and assassination of his life. That's what he advised. Adultery and assassination. It doesn't get uglier than that. That brings us to question three. How was Ahithophel brought down? Okay, sometimes you see snowball effect and you think, oh man, things are going so bad so quickly. How can it be stopped? Have you ever felt that? You think, there's no stopping this train. So you think, what, how is God going to stop this? Okay, 2 Samuel 17, verse 7. Hushai said to Absalom, the counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good at this time. <gasps> there must have been a collective <clears throat> gasp. What, what, what counsel did he say? Yeah, you give me 12,000 men, we'll go get them. I'll, I'll kill them myself. Verse 8, 4, said Hushai, thou knowest thy father and his men, that they be mighty men. What are mighty men? The special forces guys. They're mighty men. As a bear robbed of her whelps in the field, thy father is a man of war. He'll not lodge with the people. Behold, he's now in some pit or some other place, and it'll come to pass when some of them be overthrown at the first, whosoever heareth it will say, there's a slaughter among the people that follow Absalom. And he also that is valiant, whose heart is as the heart of a lion, shall utterly melt. For all, all Israel knoweth thy father is a mighty man. So he's a special forces guy himself. Uh, yeah, I'd say lion and a bear with his bare hands took down Goliath with a sling. He's a mighty man, and they which be with him are valiant men. Therefore I counsel that all Israel be generally gathered unto thee from Dan even to Beersheba as the sand that's by the, seashore, uh, by the sea for multitude, that thou go to battle in thine own person, so shall we come upon him in some place where he shall be found. We shall light upon him as dew falleth upon the ground of him and of all the men that are with him. There shall not be left so much as one. Moreover, if he be gotten to a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we'll draw it into the river till there be not one small stone found there, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. Okay, how was he brought down? First of all, superior counsel. Through superior counsel. This had never happened. So Ahithophel is overplaying his hand. He said, Give me 12,000 men. I'll go after him. We'll destroy him. And Hushai says, ah, uh, listen, the counsel that Ahithophel hath given is not good. <gasps> I'm sure there's a murmuring through the whole court. That had never been, nobody ever trumped Ahithophel. No, you underestimate your father, Absalom. He's not just some upstart in military endeavors. He, he's seasoned. He's not sleeping among the troops tonight. He's off in some pit or some cave. He's isolated, and if an attack occurs, word will get out, and men will rally to the death to fight for their leader. No, 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 no. You better not just take 12,000 men. You better get guys from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. You better get the whole army. You think, what is Hushai doing? He's buying time. He's, he's going to call in the two priests and say, tell your boys to get word to David. He's got to get out of Dodge right now or out of Jerusalem. Okay, so there's superior counsel, but then read on. Let's go on down to verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 22. Chapter 17, verse 22. Then David arose and all the people that was with him, and they passed over Jordan. That's the Jordan River. 
By morning light, there lacked not one of them that was not gone over. So in other words, before dawn, they escape. And when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his ass and arose and got him home to his house, to his city. He put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in the sepulcher of his father. What just happened? When he realized that somebody had outwitted him, he thought, my career's done. I've never had a peer in this industry, and I've just been outdone. So he gets on his donkey, he rides home, gets all of his fare in order, and he puts the noose around his own neck. How was he brought down? Number one was superior counsel, or letter A. B, self-termination, which is a clinical way of saying what? Suicide. Whoa, this is all happening. So what in the world is going on? Let me, let me just say a word here, especially to all you men. Fellas, we tend to identify ourselves with our career so intrinsically that sometimes we feel like if we can't work anymore, if we're not good at what we do, we feel like we've lost our value. And let me tell you, your foremost value is not in the work you do. It's in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You may lose your ability to work, but you will never lose the relationship with God once you know him as Savior. I want to say a word about suicide too. You would not believe the amount of self-destructive thoughts that are not just rampant in society, but in our churches. One of my dear pastors uh, has a daughter, was a counselor at the Wilds, and I was talking to her and said, um, how did the summer go? She said, Brother Rich, I, you know, every week I'd have a cabin of eight girls she said, on average, I had two every week who were into cutting, self-mutilation. Two every week, that's one out of, or two out of eight, one, you know, one-fourth. That used to be so rare. Let me tell you, that's not isolated anymore. I want to speak frankly to you. There are people in this room, you've thought about suicide. Just a word to you. Those thoughts are not coming from you. How would you know, Rich? I know. Because God says in Ephesians, no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it. Ephesians 5.29. The strongest instinct you have is to survive. You read articles like Reader's Digest, you know, drama in real life. People will go to the nth degree to stay alive. Yeah, yeah, but you preachers all, you think you have, you know, you got all these platitudes that you offer, but you, you're not in my head. No, I'm not, but somebody else is. You're saying I'm possessed? No, you don't have to be possessed to think these thoughts. You wouldn't know, because you see, it was all first person. I should just, I should, just, yeah, because Satan's a master manipulator, but I believe this with all my heart. This is why the scripture says, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Thoughts of self-destruction do not originate with you. They originate with the enemy of the soul. John 10, verse 10 says, the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Dear friend, I'm speaking not with condescension, but with compassion. Let me tell you, if you've had self-destructive thoughts, they are not coming from God. They're coming from the enemy. He can't destroy you without God's permission. But amazingly, God has made you an autonomous being. You could destroy yourself without God's permission. Well, that can't be true. 
every suicide was not sanctioned by God. But people do it, don't they? What Satan wants to do is get you to do what he can't do without God's permission. Remember Job, you know, and let me, let me take away everything he's got. He'll curse you to your face, all right? You can touch his possessions, not his body. That doesn't work. So he comes back, well, let me, let me take away his health, all right? You can take away his health, but you can't touch his life. See, God set up parameters. Satan couldn't go beyond the boundaries. If Satan can talk you into, self into self-destruction, he'll achieve what he doesn't have permission to do. He'll get you to do the work. Listen, I've had pastor friends that have called me and said, Rich, I, am, I just need to talk to somebody. It's gotten so bad, I just feel like ending it all. These are men that are in the Word every day. These are men that love God. I, I tell you that because you're not alone. There have no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God's faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will also, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Verse 12 says, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Oh, I would never think self-destructive thoughts. You think any of these pastors ever thought they'd think self-destructive thoughts? Satan's the master manipulator and schemer and liar. That's why he says, bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We all ought to memorize 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. That's where the battle is. Well, we go back to Ahithophel. So, who was he? Counselor to David, conspirator against David. What did he advise? Adultery with David's wife, assassination of David's life, uh, uh, adultery with his wives, assassination of his life. How was he brought down? Superior counsel, self-termination. But, but there is one nagging question. And as I'm sitting there at that time listening to Jim Shetler preach this, I'm thinking, what's the question I'm thinking? You're thinking it. Why? Let's go to chapter 23. Why was Ahithophel so hateful? Why was Ahithophel so hateful? Chapter 23. I want you to look at verse 8 for a minute. Chapter 23, verse 8. These be the names of the mighty men whom David had. From verse 8 all the way down to verse 39, you have a list of all the mighty men. Again, they were the special forces guys. Okay, so Army Rangers, you know, Delta Force, Navy SEALs. The elite fighters, so these are all those guys. Go down to verse 34. Eliphalet, the son of Ahashbi, the son of the Malchathite. Eliam, the son of, look who? Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Okay, I circled Eliam, one of David's mighty men. Who was his dad? Ahithophel. Just in case you wonder, well, could there have been other Ahithophels? He's called Ahithophel the Gilanite. Remember where was Ahithophel from? Gilo, same guy. Eliam. That sounds familiar. Yeah, let's back up. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Let me read in verse 1 here, chapter 11. So here, here's a man who was formerly faithful to David. He had made a commitment to David's service. His children were in David's service. I mean, you think about, this is a family thing, all right? 2 Samuel 11, look at verse 1. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. They destroyed all the children of Ammon, besieged Rabbah, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. It came to pass in an evening tide that David rose up from off his bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. The woman was very beautiful to look upon. Okay, let's just stop there for a minute. Would you all look up here before you get ahead of me? You all know this story, right? 
You can think of David's life in a series of couplets. When he was younger, it was David and Goliath. In his early years as a man, it was David and Jonathan, his good friend. Later on, there was a very dark period in David's life. We think David and Bathsheba. We're reading about it. Time when kings go forth to battle. He should have been off at war. You know, he can't lead from the back. He sends him off to battle with Joab. He stays behind. Whatever reason, one night, whether he can't sleep or, I don't know, he gets up and I, I assume, and I think this is a fair assumption, it had to be a pretty moonlit night because normally they didn't have street lamps like we do. They had torches, right? But from the veranda of the palace, he sees a woman who is bathing. Well, what should he have done? Uh-huh. But he didn't. James 1, 13, let no man say when he's tempted. I'm tempted of God. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man, but every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. Sin when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Uh, second Corinthians, I'm sorry, um, James 1, 13 to 15. This is why it's important to memorize scripture. Now that verse wasn't around. Those verses weren't around when David was going through his, but, but you know, so many of the scriptures were. Like, be sure your sin will find you out, and thou shalt not commit adultery. But instead of thinking on scripture, all he's doing is feeding his lust. So read on, verse 3, what happens? David sent and inquired after the woman. One said, is not this Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers, took her, she came to him, he lay with her, she was purified from her uncleanness. She returned to her house and the woman conceived and told David and said, I am with child. Wait a minute, so if she's the daughter of Eliam, who was one of David's mighty men, then she was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. Oh, my. I remember when I was a kid, there used to be a guy on the radio named Paul Harvey. Stand by for news. Any of you remember Paul Harvey? And he would give the news of the day on the radio, and then he'd tell this amazing story. It'd be some elaborate story, and he would only use first names. And you'd be all into the story, and at the end, he would throw out the full name of the person, which was somebody that everybody knew, and when he'd unraveled the plot, he'd say, and now you know the rest of the story. We got to this section, and I've been following just like you have, and I, knew, I, had no, I had no idea where this was going. And when I saw that Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather, I knew the rest of the story. You ever do connect the dots when you're a kid? And sometimes, you know, you're like 10 or 11, like, I don't know what this picture is. But you get around like 45, 46, 47, oh, yeah, you know, and you, it's already clear even before you finish the dots what the picture is, right? Oh, I'm seeing where these dots are leading. Okay, so I'll give you the title to the message tonight. It's called The Bonds of Bitterness. The Bonds of Bitterness. David sends for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, hey, come home, give me a report of the war. What's he doing? Trying to cover his tracks. Okay, thanks for the good report. Listen, take a furlough. Go home, be with your wife. Why? because then everybody will think the child who's coming is theirs. He won't go home. He's so loyal to David. Can you imagine? The king said, take the night off. Oh no, my buddies are in battle. I'm not going home. Oh, 
So then David gets him drunk. Scripture clearly says, woe to him that giveth his neighbor drink. He gets him drunk. Still, he won't go home to his wife. David says, I'm in a pickle here. What am I going to do? So he writes an official notice and gives it to Uriah, seals it with the king's ring on the wax, take this to Joab. You know, Uriah doesn't peek. Like, what's this say? He doesn't know. He's carrying his death notice. He gives it to Joab, and Joab looks at it and looks at him like, you have no idea what you just delivered me. And David tells him, you put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle, and then you pull all the troops back. You leave him isolated. I mean, it's like being at the Battle of Fallujah, and, you know, everybody draws back, and it's just you. It's like being in Benghazi, and your government doesn't come to your aid. You know, one of those. And so, all of a sudden, pull back, and he dies. And David thinks, well, at least nobody will ever find out. However, Joab's his general. And when Joab gets back to town and he finds out what's been going on, Joab's got to talk to somebody. Ahithophel's in the inner circle. You think they talked? Folks, people talk. Whistleblowers talk. And so Ahithophel and Joab figure this out and they know the king has covered his tracks. It's amazing that there's no record that Eliam ever turned on David. Eliam was her Bathsheba's dad. Scripture's silent on the matter. It's very clear that Ahithophel turned on him. You might say, well, I don't blame him. Yeah, it's a very common human emotion, isn't it? But let me give you a couple of concluding thoughts as we pull this message together. So he was formerly faithful to David, but he was bitterly betrayed by David. Look with me at a couple of scriptures. I want you to see as we pull this message to a conclusion tonight. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15. Toward the end of your Bible. Book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Look at verse 14. Follow peace with all men. You know, some people are easy to get along with. Some people not so much. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know, bitterness will destroy you, but grace will deliver you. You say, I could never forgive that person. No, Jesus said, without me you can do what? Nothing, John 15, verse 5. But I can do all things, through, all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me, Philippians 4, 13. Bitterness will defile you, but grace will deliver you. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 gives us the whole principle of put off, renew, put on. Some of you have uh, studied Jim Berg's book, um, Changed Into His Image, and it's based on this principle. And by the way, it's a good series on how to get victory over stubborn habits. Ephesians 4, 31 says, Let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be a kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Listen, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Let me ask you, who was asking forgiveness at that moment? Nobody. The thief who later repented hadn't even said anything yet. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Nobody was asking for it. 
he provided it before anybody asked. Well, I, they haven't asked me to forgive them. doesn't matter. You've got to find forgiveness in your heart. Well, there is no forgiveness in my heart. No, apart from God, there is no forgiveness in your heart. But you see, the, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. I, I jotted down a couple of quotes about bitterness. You see, bitterness can be vertical, that's directed at God, or it can be horizontal, that's directed at men. Listen to this. Jim Shetler in that message said, bitterness results from an unfulfilled expectation of my justice system. Bitterness results from an unfulfilled expectation of my justice system. Well, it, that's just not right. Well, if God were really just, ooh, you and I don't define God. We don't define what justice is. God does. Bitterness results from an, un, an unfulfilled expectation of my justice system. Chuck Missler said this, bitterness is a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. Bitterness is a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner man. Johnny Erickson Tata, many of you know, she was paralyzed as a girl when she dove into the Chesapeake Bay, and, and uh, she has a, an amazing syndicated radio program and sweetest personality for a person who's been paralyzed since she was a teenager. She, she paints using her teeth because everything from neck down is paralyzed. Somebody asked her one day, Johnny, were you ever tempted to be bitter at God for allowing this? She said, this was profound, being bitter is like drinking poison yourself expecting the other person to die. Being bitter is like drinking poison yourself expecting the other person to die. Therefore, take that. See, bitterness does not lead you to logical conclusions. Bitterness just destroys you. I've got an anecdote here from somebody whose name you know, Corey Tenboom. Listen to this. It's called, I'm Still Learning to Forgive. It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947. I saw him. A balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next moment, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came rushing back with a flood. The, the harsh room with its overhead lights, a pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath her parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück, Ravensbrück, the concentration camp where we were sent. He was now standing in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you have said, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had stood face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there, but since that time I've become a Christian. I know God's forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he ease her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that I stood there as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever have to do, for I had to do it, 
I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still, I stood there with coldness clutching my heart. This is good. But forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I stretched out my hand. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current sprang into my shoulder, raced down my arm, and went through our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Wow. And I know you're thinking, good for her, she's more of a woman than I am because I could never do that. Oh, you're exactly right. She couldn't either. But I can do all things through Christ. I'm going to walk over to the piano. I don't play the piano, so don't have any expectations here, but (laughs) there's an illustration I want to give you. I took piano lessons for three years when I was a kid. My poor parents, biggest waste of their money. And uh, I love music. I wish I could play. But I, you know, I, I, uh, I couldn't learn to read notes. I was an A student in school. I couldn't figure out notes. You who have that gift, God bless you. I wish I had it. Tell you why I'm moving here. Sometimes people look at a person like me and they think, you know, it must be nice to be in the ministry. You work with nice people. You know, you work in situations where people really appreciate you. You work with pastors. I mean, I work at a place, I get berated for being Christian. I might even get cussed out. Yes, I will tell you, I have never been cussed at by anybody I work with in ministry. Ever. I'm sure you're glad to know that. Uh, Must be nice to work in that kind of environment. In fact, every day I work with the word of God and the souls of people. They're eternal. What could be better? So you might think, what would you know about this? I'm not just preaching theory to you. I'll never forget in the year 2000, my home church went through a tragedy. Our pastor had been there for 22 years. His wife had come into a time of depression. She loaded the revolver that he used to use as a Kansas City policeman, shot and killed their 24-year-old daughter, then turned the pistol on herself and took her own life. I was in Tennessee on my way to Georgia to preach. I got word from Tom Farrell, who's a friend of ours, and he said, Rich, you need to contact your home church right away. His pastor at the time, Carl Herbster, was going over to do mop-up. In fact, Ron DeGard, some of you know, Evangelist Ron DeGard, was to be married the next day at our church. His wife is from our church, Kristen. I didn't go to Georgia for that meeting. I was heading back to Kansas City well-meaning friends calling rich angela how are you doing how, how do you answer that how are you doing oh we're fine well that that's not right we're not well we've decided to give up on god well that's not true either 
How do you answer that question? How are you doing? I said, well, I can tell you this. We are sustained. Open your Bible as we finish tonight to Psalm 55, if you will, and we'll finish in Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Okay, here's what I learned. Three years of piano lessons. Right there is middle C. I'm sure you're impressed. I know that much, okay? There are three pedals on this piano. The one to the far right is called the sustain pedal. Yeah, listen to this. Middle C. Now middle C with a sustain pedal. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He'll never suffer the righteous to be moved. He'll hold you through it. He'll carry you through it. You know, I, I would use that scripture repeatedly over the next few years. That was in 2000. We got through that. 2003, my wife and I were expecting, at the time, our third child. And uh, Angela always had a hard time in the first trimester, but usually by the fourth month, she was getting better. Well, the fourth month came, and she wasn't any better. In fact, she was so sick, she ended up staying with my parents. Her mom and dad traveled in evangelism at the time. So she stayed with my parents in Florida, and I'm having to do like right now I'm doing, and going without her. This is not my favorite thing. And I'm up in Ohio preaching. She's home. It's Easter Sunday, 2003. And she said, Rich, I just feel horrible. I said, Angela, the Lord's been working in my heart. It, I, I think you and I need to face the fact we could lose this baby. She said, I know. I said, hon, we, we've got to remember, no matter what happens, God is good, no matter what. And if the baby survives, we bless the Lord. And if he takes the baby, we bless the Lord. Somehow we were able to get on the phone with a midwife. This is Easter Sunday. That my friends had been through a similar situation, friends I'm staying with. And while the midwife is on the phone talking to my wife, whom she's never met, my wife said, oh no, my water just broke. She said, Angela, go to the hospital right now. She said, what about my husband? I'll call him. You go to the hospital. 17 weeks into term. The midwife calls me and says, Mr. Tozer, I am, I am so very sorry to be the one to tell you this. Your wife just went to the hospital. Her water broke. My mind's scrambling. I said, I know full term is 40 weeks. I know we're only at 17 weeks. Ma'am, is there any way this baby survives? She said, I'm sorry. I'm not only going through that for my wife's sake, but I'm not there with her to hold her. And I feel helpless. What do you do? Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. Lord, I don't know what to do right now. I want to help Angela. I need to get a plane ticket. I need to go home. Can't get a plane ticket all night. I'm up all night trying to get a plane. Finally, I got one the next morning, canceled the meeting, went home. We cried in each other's arms. She went to the Sacred Heart Hospital in, in Pensacola, the closest place, and we're weeping with each other. She said, Rich, when they brought in this little boy, the only boy we would have, fingernails already, little eyes. That's, that's not a fetus, it's a baby. And I will tell you something, God gave grace. I always thought if I had a son, I'm a Richard Jr. My dad, Dick Tozer, was Richard Sr. I always thought if I had a boy, I wanted him to be Richard III. That sounds pretty regal, you know. 
And uh, nickname, we'd call him Trey, because I was a basketball player, but I could never hit the three-point shot. So to have a son named Trey, that'd be pretty cool. We didn't name him Trey. We named him Nathaniel. Because, as you know, Nathaniel means one in whom is no guile. This kid never lived a life of, he had no record before God. You know, that was in 2003. 2008, five years later, we were planning to go away on a 15th anniversary cruise with some friends of ours who are same day, same year of wedding as us and in the ministry. So they're already up in Seattle, Washington, waiting for us to finish up meetings in, in uh, our home state, and we're going to meet them up there. I'm on my way home from a meeting one night in Kansas City, and my sister calls and says, Rich, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this, but we lost Dad tonight. I said, lost Dad? What? Rich, he died. My dad was only 65 years old. As far as we know, it was a blocked bowel that caused the sudden unexpected death. I, not only am I not going to Alaska for a cruise, I'm going to New Jersey where my parents' plots are from Florida. We're all meeting up in New Jersey to do a funeral. 2012, my wife's youngest sister, Sonia, dies of breast cancer at age 34. Okay, so 2000, murder-suicide. 2003, loss of a baby boy. 2008, loss of my dad. 2012, my wife's sister dies at age 34. Now, I'm not telling you, look, I'm not the only person who's been through these things, okay? I know you could all tell me these stories. Here's why I'm telling you this. I'm not simply preaching theory to you. I can tell you this, I love the Lord more than I ever have. I trust him more than ever. Cast thy burden upon the Lord. He shall sustain thee. He'll never suffer the righteous to be moved. When you go through trials, there are two alternatives. You can come out bitter or you can come out better. And I believe by God's grace, we've come out better. But it's not because we're any good. It's because he's good. And I want you to see this in, in Psalm 55 as you're there and we're closing. And, and, and notice back in verse 12 of this psalm, some have wondered, well, what, what are the circumstances here? He said, it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me, then I could have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, my equal, my guide, my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in company. Many believe that the circumstances of the 55th Psalm were when David was betrayed by Ahithophel. Look at 21. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. You've been patient tonight. I decided to preach this message tonight because we're a little earlier start than other nights. Thank you for hanging in with me. Let me tell you something. When Jim Shetler preached that message that night, I had no, I had no idea how revolutionary that would be for a couple of acquaintances of, of mine in ministry. But I realized this, that truth about this tragic character is going to help our churches. You should know the truth and the truth shall make you free. John 8, 32. You don't have to be destroyed by bitterness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with you with all malice and be a kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You ought to memorize Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. You ought to memorize Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Sounds like you think we should memorize a lot. Yeah, I do. Because you're to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the word of God is the balm for your soul. 
Would you stand with me? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I, I know it's a heavy message tonight, but I, I've thought about this. You know, if we're going to have revival, we've got to deal with sins of the spirit. Right. And I want to tell you, bitterness is a scourge to the soul. Bitterness will destroy you. Lord, I, all I know is to deliver the news. I, I feel like the person bringing the prescription from the doctor to a person says, here's what the doc said, go get this. You're the great physician. You write the prescription and you perform the surgery and you bring the healing. There are some who need it right now. I don't know everybody's circumstances. I am burdened though. I'm sure there's somebody who has had thoughts of self-destruction. I don't know whether suicidal thoughts or not, but self-harm, self-destruction, self-loathing, giving up. Please help them to take their eyes off themselves and put their, their gaze upon the lovely person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe some are here. Maybe some are listening. I, I saw in the bulletin a lot of people listen in on these services. I pray that you'd work in anybody's heart who's hearing this message. Use the truth to set us free. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.